tonight, I want to talk to you and just ask you a question. Um, how do you feel when you get a love letter? How do you feel when you get a love letter from your wife or from your husband? Some of you are like, oh, <laughs> now I know where your daughter got that from. I, uh, you know, my dad did something that was really funny. It didn't bother me. He thought it would bother me. You know, he thought it would get away with me. But he somehow or another, he and my mother, when I went to college, they got all these love letters that I had received and Becky's love letters, and he just gave Becky this big bundle from old girlfriends and from her of love letters. He said, here, do with these what you want to do with them. And uh, you see, she read every one of them. And um, I, uh, I remember saying, Dad, why did you do that? He goes, I thought it was funny. He says, he says did that embarrass you? I go, no, it didn't embarrass me. He says, there's some stuff in there that's embarrassing, boy. And I go, it didn't embarrass me, Dad. It made me feel kind of good when I got the love letters at the time. And that's what love letters do. When, if, when I get a love note or a love letter, and she wrote me, she, matter of fact, she gave me this illustration today. She doesn't know this, but she sent me a real sweet note today, and I went, oh, that makes me feel so good. And then I thought, that just fits in with the message tonight. So if you haven't written your husband or your wife or your fiance a love letter or a love note recently, do that. Don't do it right now. You need to listen to this message, but do that tonight because love letters are supposed to make you feel good. And I hope that when you get them that uh, you're reminded of how much you're cared for and how much you're loved. Which brings me to what I want to talk about tonight. The Bible is actually a love letter that God wrote to you and I. I mean, that's exactly what the Bible is. And I love science. I love what science is giving us and what science, how science has improved our lives from everything like the cameras we're using, our cell phones, our iPads. You know, there are some things I look at and go, why can't we catch up, for instance, and in living here in Michigan, I think you'll agree with me on this. I just cannot understand why we're still using 1800 technology in the year, in the 2023, when we stick cancer causing created creosote poles and string electrical wires up and down our highways the way we were doing in the 1800s, stringing telegraph wire. Why can't we bury our power lines under the ground so that when we get high winds and snow, we still have electricity. Does that make sense to you? So I'm thankful for science and technology, and sometimes I go, why are you doing this when everybody could benefit, especially in Michigan, if we had our power lines under the ground? So if you have any problems with that, don't write me. Write your city councilman. Write, you know, uh, I can tell you who they are here in Brownstown. If you need to know that, you can write them. But I was reading an article in First Things Magazine. It's a journal that I really, really enjoy. But there was an article published in the Wall Street Journal in October that was really disturbing. And First Things wrote an article. Carl Truman, who is a, is a, is a very biblical thinker, talks about how that there is science now that's working on producing human embryo cells from the skin cells of our body which means, according to the science and according to the scientists doing it, that no longer would a, a, a female's egg or a male sperm be necessary for the creation of a human being. And I'll just read you a little bit of this. I didn't want to put it on the web tonight because I wasn't sure if there was copyright concerns here. 
It says, the science is surely impressive, but it raises all kinds of ethical questions. The article nods to the fact that developments in reproductive technology have transformed the notion of parenthood. Though it does not use the term, a contractual notion of parenthood as functional rather than natural. Now, that's important. As functional rather than natural seems to be emerging in the West. The recent, th the recent thankfully failed bill in California that aimed to make affirmation of a child's gender confusion a necessary parental virtue is a good, if egregious, example of this. Failure to affirm the correct political test, taste, and you're no longer considered a parent. Such cultural logic does not emerge in a vacuum or in a short, a short span of time. The reason this, this article gripped my attention was because it was one more time about parents could refuse, according to the founders of this technology, if they didn't like the child that was developing, it was a product, they owned it, they could destroy it and get rid of it and start all over creating another human being because there was no human sperm or human egg involved. Of course, they're a long way from getting there, but it's the technology. But what got me here, and I thought where Carl Truman just nailed this in his article, is, and if you, if you listen, and if you want the, the link, if you'll email me, I'll be happy to send you the link. It's a, it's a, it's a free link. You don't have to have a subscription to read it. But what, what really got me was such cultural logic does not emerge in a vacuum or in a short span of time. And that's why this evening I want to talk to you about a message that I think is so important, and that is what the Bible really is. The Bible is not information. The Bible is transformation for you and for me. The Bible is to transform our lives. And so let's have a word of prayer. We're going to dive into this tonight and just ask the Lord to help us understand this and apply it to our lives. Heavenly Father, I'm just praying now in the next few minutes that, Jesus, you will help us to read, to understand, and to grow and to see that we're not just wanting to be people who are walking Bibles, but we want to be people whose lives are formed by the Bible, people whose lives have been transformed by your word, and people, Lord, who live out the love that's being expressed to us in the word of God. For it's in Jesus' name I pray, amen. It's amazing to me, I have met so many people through the years that actually, they knew a lot about the Bible, but the Bible had never transformed their lives. Some of these have been professional theologians that I've had the privilege of meeting. Some of these have been pastors that, uh, that do not believe the Bible is the Word of God, but they, they love the church, not as you and I would think of it, but they just love to be able to talk about the Bible. When I get a love letter, and I'm thinking about Love letters from Becky now, not any that came before I married Becky. When I got a love letter, I never sat down and analyzed the handwriting. I never parsed the verbs. As a pastor and as a preacher, I sit down with the Word of God, and I, it's called exegesis. I sit down, and, and if I'm unfamiliar with the words that are being used, I look up how they're used. I look at what they mean. I look at them either in the Hebrew or the Greek using my tools that I have available to me. I, I look at the root words of them. Fortunately, I happen to love words, so it, that's not a draining exercise for me. 
as I go through it, I'm, I'm trying to parse out and exegete this well for you as a congregation and also for my family because I'm my family's pastor as well and I want them to grow and the people who are kind enough to listen. So I don't look at a love letter and analyze it. But the best part of my preparation for preaching a sermon has nothing to do with... The best part doesn't come out of the exegesis. The best part comes out of praise and worship and prayer and saying, God, talk to me. I want to listen. I want to apply this to myself. But I also want to be able to tell your people what you think of them and what you're saying to them. And so the exegesis, without taking time to worship and to love the Lord and to pray and to be in His presence, would produce something dry. It might produce something doctrinally correct, but it wouldn't produce something alive. And when Becky sent me that note today, I thought, that's what I'm trying to get at here. I didn't stop to analyze her. Ver I'm not going to tell you what she said. It's none of your business. But I can tell you it made me feel good. And uh, I think that's the mistake that sometimes we make. And I'm not talking about emotionalism. But I am talking about not only understanding what the word means, but loving the God who loved us so much that he gave his son to die for our sins so that when we read the Bible, we recognize it's a love letter. Now, according to Paul, the Pharisees, and according to the interaction we saw Jesus have with the Pharisees, the Pharisees were, they never read the Bible as a love letter. They read the Bible as a rule book. Who's in and who's out, okay? Who's in and who's out? That's what they were getting at. Paul said in Philippians chapter 3 and verse 6, he's talking about his former life as a Pharisee. He says, I was so zealous that I harshly persecuted the church. And as for righteousness, I obeyed the law without fault. I mean, let's give credit where credit is due. Paul and the Pharisees were really trying to obey the law to the best of their ability. But Jesus totally dismantled their worldview when he told them, if you break the spirit of the law, you've broken the whole law. If you break one law, you've broken the whole law. So if it's not about emotionalism, and there was a little bit of emotion today when Becky sent me that note. There was emotion when I had my devotions this morning, and I read what the, the Lord said to me in, in the scriptures, and I shared one of those verses early this morning with those of you who follow my Facebook post. If it's not emotionalism, then how am I to look at the Bible with its information for life transformation? And the first thing is, I think that I would share with you is the Bible gives me a foundation for my faith. The Bible gives me a foundation for my faith. It does give me doctrine, and doctrine is important. Those of you who, like me, grew up during the charismatic revival, you remember there was a lot of barbs and people who said, we don't need doctrine. And so because people threw doctrine out the window, there was a lot of excesses, and there was a lot of things that took place that a good biblical doctrinal teaching would have helped us to avoid. Doctrine is not our enemy. Doctrine is our friend. But doctrine is not our God. It's not a rule book. The Bible says in 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 16, it says, All Scripture 
Genesis to Revelation, and I just had a really good conversation with someone about this this last week that's wrestling with this. All Scripture is inspired by God and is useful to teach us what is true and to make us realize what is wrong in our lives. It corrects us when we're wrong, and it teaches us to do what is right. So when you look at this verse of Scripture, doctrine has to be firmly rooted in the Scripture But doctrine has to have the spirit of what the Scripture is all about there. For instance, Jesus said, you know, that you shall not kill. Well, if you hate somebody, Jesus says you've committed murder in your heart. If you hate a people group, if you hate a racial group, if if you hate, if you're a Republican and you hate Democrats, if you're Democrats and you hate Republicans, you have committed sin in your heart. There was a survey recently done by the, uh, the the Gotten Institute, and they came up with this, some shocking studies in America how so many Republicans believe that America would be better off if all the Democrats died and were killed, and how Democrats believe that America would be better off if all the Republicans died and were killed. How can a nation survive like that? But it's because they've taken their platforms and their agendas and they're, by that, they're going, who's in and who's out? Well, Jesus was amazing about who was in. Because who was in with Jesus shocked everybody. And sometimes when Jesus said, you have missed the kingdom altogether, that shocked everybody. And it all had to do with the foundation of the faith. I love what Warren Wiersbe said. And this is kind of cute, but it is so true. The Bible teaches us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Can you say amen to that? That is a great statement. The Bible teaches us what is right, what is not right, how to get right, and how to stay right. Well, if I am going to be right, I'm not going to be smug about my doctrine. Okay? And smugness was what kept the Pharisees from seeing that Jesus really was the Messiah. He was really the one they were waiting for. In 1 Timothy chapter 1 and verse 7, Paul writes about to young Pastor Timmy, he's saying to him about these Pharisees, they want to be known as teachers of the law of Moses, but they don't know what they are talking about even though they speak so confidently. And the reason he's getting at this is because it's a rule book. Who's in, who's out? We're saved not by the Bible, but we're saved by Jesus. And the Scriptures, Old Testament and New Testament, reveal Jesus to us. And so that's very important that when I talk about the Scripture and the Scripture is the foundation for our faith, and we talk about information and transformation, as you see on the screen over here, is that we understand we're saved by Christ. We don't worship the Bible. But we recognize the Bible as the Word of God. Jesus said in John chapter 5 and verse 39, if you want to follow along with me, you search the Scriptures because you think they give you eternal life. But the Scriptures point to me, yet you refuse to come to me to receive this life. And so the goal of reading the Bible is to see Jesus in the Bible, to see Jesus in the prophets, to see Jesus in the wisdom literature, to see Jesus in the Torah, the the first five books of the Bible. The goal is seeing Christ. It's why Charles Spurgeon would say, if I preach from the Old Testament, if I preach from any passage in the Old Testament, if I preach from the epistles, or if I preach from Revelation, I make a beeline straight to the cross. 
And you know what he's saying there? He's saying, I read that, and then I want people to see Jesus in that passage of Scripture. I, I take them straight to the cross. So let's look at a familiar passage. Um, Jesus is teaching about the good soil, the bad soil. Let's look at this passage tonight from the book of uh, Mark, Matthew chapter 13, verse 18. Now listen to the explanation of the parable about the farmer planting seeds. The seed that fell on the footpath represents those who hear the message about the kingdom, and they don't understand it. Then the evil one comes, and he snatches away the seed that was planted in their hearts. The seed on the rocky soil represents those who hear the message and immediately receive it with joy, but since they don't have deep roots, they don't last, they don't last long. They fall away as soon as they have problems or are persecuted for believing God's word. The seed that fell among the thorns represents those who hear God's word, but all too quickly the message is crowded out by the worries of this life and the lure of wealth, so no fruit is produced. And the seed that fell on good soil represents those who truly hear and understand. Represents those who truly hear and understand. Underline that phrase, who truly hear and understand. That is a hugely important phrase. Who truly hear and understand. What do they truly hear and understand? They truly hear and understand God's word. And then they produce a harvest of 30, 60, or even 100 times as much as had been planted. You see, the hard pack road, or the path, the footpath he's talking about, that represents those who just refuse to listen. And occasionally, we all run into those people. They're just not going to... So you just keep talking to Jesus about them. You don't give up on them, but you keep talking to Jesus about them. But you continue building relationships with other people, looking for people who are more receptive. The rocky places that Jesus talks about there, these are people who have a superficial response. They get all excited. And another, another one of the tellings of the gospel, that Jesus uses an illustration of the bird stealing the seed. You know, and I really believe you could think of that in terms as the devil, demonic spirits, whatever, coming and trying to rob people of the word. There are times, for instance, I can preach about peace and how peace is available to you, and the next day I'll get a call from somebody in the congregation, and they're just falling all apart. And I said, did you hear the message yesterday? Yes, but. And I go, no buts. Let's go look at what the word of the Lord says. And then I'll say, read the scripture to me, and we'll, we'll talk and we'll pray together. But what's happening is the enemy is trying to steal the word from them, not denying the problem they're facing, but as long as they're looking at the problem like this, they never see God who's bigger than the problem that will give them peace. And so the, the rocky path is those that not only are people who receive Jesus but then fall away, but it can be people who never grow in their faith. And then the thorns are those people who are they're just preoccupied with other things. They're more preoccupied with their careers. They're more preoccupied with their children. They're more preoccupied with their, their, their fun things that they do in life. There are any numbers of things that can preoccupy us. And we shouldn't think of that just being in terms of, 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 of a job and earning a living, but anything that takes the place of Christ being first and foremost in your heart, that's what you're preoccupied with. I want you to listen to this from Don Carson. Don Carson is a theologian. He's a good theologian. He's, um, 
I think he's one of those practical theologians that if you take the time to read his stuff, it's a little wordy. I don't always agree with him because he is a, he is a five-point Calvinist, and I love my Calvinist friends, and we disagree friendly, but there are some things that we just don't see eye to eye on. But Don Carson is a good pastoral theologian if you ever want to read some of his stuff, and I'll be happy to recommend two devotional books by him tonight if you ever want to read those. Carson says this about the Word. The fault is in the hearer's and not in the message. When the seed falls in good soil, it will be productive. In this way, Jesus assured his disciples that despite the areas of hostility and inadequate response, there would be a harvest. And I think this is in your outline, isn't it? It's not? Okay, then you can get it off the screen later. There would be a harvest. That's what Jesus is saying. In all of your sowing, in all of your sharing of the word, there will be a harvest. But even in the good soil, however, there is room for some variation in the degree of productivity. This is helpful. 100, 60, or 30 times. In other words, disciples do not come in only one size or type, and there is room in the kingdom of God for the ordinary as well as for the spectacular. Can I make a confession to you? I miss Billy Graham. I miss Billy Graham. We don't have a mouthpiece in the church like Billy Graham had for the culture and for the nation. And I dare say that in just a couple of more years, I could stand up in the pulpit and talk about Billy Graham, and there would be a certain age group of our church who's never heard of him. We need those men and women that God gives spectacular ministries to. But not all of us are going to be hundredfold Christians. I think Billy Graham was one of those who was hundredfold Christian. I think Dwight Moody, I think Charles Spurgeon were hundredfold Christians. Some of us are thirtyfold. I would count myself there. I, I want to be more. I want to be better. I want to be richer. Some of us are sixtyfold. And I think Dr. Addison that I worked for, for so long, that I admired and loved so much and had such impact on my life, I think he was one of those 60-fold Christians. He just, he just, everybody's life he touched, he just seemed to multiply their effectiveness because of his impact upon them. That's what I mean by transformation. People who get information can be Rocky Road Christians, not talking about the ice cream. They can be hard path Christians. They can be briar patch Christians, if you're familiar with the tales that came from Uncle Remus in Georgia. But people that are transformed by the Word, they either become 30-fold, 60-fold, or 100-fold. The Word is going to produce a harvest in your heart. So the question for me, when it comes to this title that I gave our message tonight, is how is my heart? That's the question. How is my heart? And that's something you have to look at prayerfully tonight. The Bible says in Romans chapter 6 and verse 22, but now you are free from the power of sin and you become slaves of God. Now you do those things that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. Circle this phrase right here, that lead to holiness and result in eternal life. When you have been freed from your sins and forgiven of your son's sins, you are free from the power of sin, and God's power is at work in you, and holiness is something that's beautiful and fruitful. Holiness is not something that's negative. It's not a smug attitude that we think that we're better. We're not holy Joes. 
But this is what holiness is. Look at Galatians chapter 5, verse 22. But the Holy Spirit produces this kind of fruit in our lives. Love and joy and peace and patience and kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Now, when I read that, I'm going to come right back, and I'm not being fawning, but that describes my wife. You're looking at holiness when you look at Becky. It doesn't always describe me, okay? But it describes Becky. And that's what happens in our lives is we're growing in grace. I see it happening in your life. I'm not going to call names out in here, but some of you I've known for quite a while now. I've seen holiness emerging in your life. I've seen how God has changed and transformed you. And in the Bible says then, and Paul goes on, and this is the word of God. This is God's love letter to you, Colossians 1.10. So put your name here, Keith, Bob, Carrie, Sally, just put your name here. Then the way you live will always honor and please the Lord, and your lives will produce every kind of good fruit. What kind of fruit? Love, peace, joy, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. And all the while... Vic, Paul, Christy, you will grow. You will grow. Underline that. You will grow as you learn to know God better and better. And that's why I'm saying tonight God gave us the Bible for transformation and not information. It's amazing to me people I meet or sometimes I read by who don't believe in God, but they know the Bible. They know the Bible. They can, they can win whatever Bible quiz you threw at them. They, they've studied theology. They know theology. But the Bible has not impacted them because they read it. As one author said, and he's not a Christian, he goes, I really recommend to the Department of Education, and he did this to the Department of Education, he spoke at the White House, that we reintroduce teaching the Bible in our schools again. I am not a Christian, he said, but he said the Bible teaches us how to live and get along in a society that has multiple generations and multiple ethnic groups living in it. Now, that's quite a statement. I hear that, and you and I are nodding our heads, we're going, oh, that's good. But that's where you're reading the Bible for information and not transformation. Because then we're studying it, how can I be a good boy or a good girl and not how can Jesus change my life? The danger then becomes what James talked about. Remember, James was the brother of Jesus in James 1.22. He said, don't just listen to God's word. You must do what it says. Otherwise, you are only fooling yourselves. For if you listen to the Word or read the Word or listen to a sermon and don't obey it, it's like glancing at your face in a mirror. You see yourself, walk away, and forget what you look like. But if you look carefully into the perfect law that sets you free, and if you do what it says and don't forget what you heard, then God will bless you for doing it. How many of you looked at a mirror sometime today? Can I see your hand? Looked in a mirror. Is that 100%? Keith, you didn't look in a mirror today? Yeah, he did. Okay, his wife says he did. 
We've all looked in a mirror today. Probably we've looked in a mirror more than once. And we were with some, we were some, with some friends. And um, was it Sophia Bulgaria? I think it was when I noticed the girls. They were all holding their phones up, and I was like, "Who are they FaceTiming?" And I walked over to them. Am I right? We're in Sofia, Bulgaria with some friends, and they were all looking at themselves in the, in the phone because they turned the cameras around where they could see themselves, and they were fixing their hair and being sure their makeup looked right. And so here are these fancy phones that become mirrors for, and I was just cracking up. And then Becky turns around and shows me my face. She says, you need a little help too, you know? So the point of the matter is we all look in mirrors, but if we don't do anything about it, what's the point of looking in the mirror, Okay. My mother used to have this way of coming and looking at me, and she'd go, did you look at yourself in the mirror? <laughs> and i go, no, ma'am. And she goes, go look at yourself in the mirror. And she was saying to me, either my hair wasn't combed right, or I wasn't dressed right, or there, something was not right. And I think that's what God is saying to us here in the book of James. He says, if you read the Word, and then you don't do what it says, then it's like looking at a mirror. But let's go back to this one word, transformation again. Sometimes I read things in God's Word, and I say, God, I can't. And the Holy Spirit goes, I know. But if you'll trust me, you will grow. And if you'll look at my Word, then I'll help you grow. So let me give you just two little questions here. Does my knowledge of the Bible increase my ability to love? And I sat down with myself, and I really pondered this question. Is all that I studied in the Bible, has it made me, and, and I don't mean this sexual, has it made me a better lover? Has it made me someone more kind, more gracious, having the ability to love? The Bible says knowledge puffs up while love builds up. Becky and I were taking an evening walk just last week, and we were having a conversation. And... I think one of the things I've noticed about myself, the longer I've walked with Christ, I'm able to trust people much easier now than what I used to be able to trust people because of a confidence in God's Word and what I've seen God do in people's lives. But that comes out of my own unique story of how I grew up. The Bible and understanding what it says about God and what it says has helped me to recognize how much I'm loved and how secure I am in Christ, how secure you are in Christ, and how I'm able to offer that to other people. But if the Bible suddenly makes me feel smug and that I'm better than other people, then I have not looked in the mirror and obeyed what the Lord says. Then secondly, can I discern the negotiables from the non-negotiables? I deliberately used Don Carson tonight as a theologian, and I brought something up that some of you would have been, no big deal. He and I would disagree on some certain core points that are very important to him and are very important to me. Billy Graham and I saw eye to eye on these things. But Don Carson loved Billy Graham. John Piper last week did a thing about how much he loved Billy Graham. Both of these are people that would disagree with Billy Graham and with me and with you perhaps on some core theological points. But they're negotiables. They're not non-negotiables. What is a non-negotiable? The cross, the inspiration of the Bible, the fact that 
you can only be saved through Christ. Those are non-negotiables, okay? And so we have agreement on the non-negotiables, but the negotiables, we can still be friends, but we don't agree on these things right here. For instance, I really hope it comes down to Georgia and Michigan this year. And I hope that Georgia just beats the snot out of Michigan. Okay? You can disagree with me on that if you like. You should disagree with me on that if you like. That's a non-negotiable. We're going to still love each other. It may take me a little while if we lose to love you like I should, but we still, it's, it's football. It's a negotiable. It's not a non-negotiable. Augustine said, in essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And that word there means love. Isn't that a great statement? In essentials, unity, and non-essentials, liberty, and in all things, charity. And then thirdly, do I have a teachable spirit? Can I learn? Well, let me wrap this up tonight. I have been totally, totally transformed. And I, you're going to think I'm being mushy tonight, but I hope it gets the point. I have been totally transformed by the love notes and the cards, the little things that Becky has slipped in my suitcase when I was traveling, because they have reminded me how much she loved me, how deep her love for me is, and what I have to look forward to coming home with her. Being deeply loved by Becky has changed my life. And if you ever heard me give my full testimony, I will tell you, the greatest healing of my life was not physical, it was emotional. And that she was such an incredible part of that. So what I'd like to ask you tonight is, have you read the Bible as a love letter from God? And has it transformed you? And when you read the Bible, do you experience that love from Him? And do you know that no matter what you do, God is still going to love you? That's how you read the Bible, for transformation and not just information. Let's have a word of prayer tonight. Father, we love you. We thank you so much for the word that you've given us. We pray that the scriptures will not lie neglected. We pray that instead that, Lord, daily we will find ourselves delving deep into them. And, the Lord, if, if there are some that are having trouble seeing and reading the scriptures as a love letter, that, the Lord, you'll take this message tonight and help them to be able to receive and See that God did love the world so much, he gave his only son for them. For it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen and amen. Hey, this Sunday, you want to join us at Woodland? I'm going to begin a new series called A Season of Thanks, and I hope that you'll come and join us. It's going to be a great day. God bless you.